0: If you'll notice in your bulletin, I've provided a, a preaching outline of the entire book for you. And so I thought that this would help, be helpful to you guys so that as we are in the forest, that we can um, kind of know where we're at as we're making progress through the, the book and navigate amongst the trees. And so I do hope that outline serves you well. And you'll notice that last week we studied the messenger listed under chapter 1, letter A. And the Apostle Paul, without question, has this burning passion and desire for the ministry of the church. And then it also is is boiled down to the point where he has the spiritual growth and the vitality of the New Testament churches, specifically on the island of Crete as he writes this letter to Titus. And God really uses Paul as the primary New Testament writer to send letters and epistles specifically addressing the New Testament churches. And we shared this, that nine out of the 13 epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote are addressed to the churches. God used other apostles to write general epistles, but it was Paul who was used in a unique fashion specifically and primarily to provide the detailed instructions for the church. And I added the word ministry in the outline because Paul truly was focused on the progress of the ministry of the church in this letter. And so our ministry messenger last week, he introduced himself as a doulos theos, right, Um, a slave of God, and we took some time to look at six foundational truths that describe for us biblical slavery doulos. It's used 124 times throughout the New Testament and it is the predominant term that describes us as believers in the New Testament. And we won't normally stop for that long to look at a single word, but because of its significant use throughout the New Testament, there are occasions that it will bless us to slow down and take take a worm's eye view that will assist our understanding. And Paul used this expression to introduce himself as a humble servant of God before he continued by also introducing himself as an apostolos, apostolos, Jesus Christos, an apostle of Jesus Christ. After witnessing the risen Christ, Paul was sent directly by the Lord with the other 12 apostles who were given the authority as sent ones or messengers of His divine truth. And we determine that Paul's letter wasn't merely suggested counsel or good advice, but his salutation shares that the Lord Jesus Christ designated him as an authoritative messenger with a, a binding apostolic word for the church. And it continues to have an impact in the church age today. It is an urgent and authoritative letter of great significance. Pray with me. I want to ask God to bless our time as we dig it out, as we get after this. Please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're blessed to study Your unchanging Word. And I pray, Father, that You would help us. I I pray, Father, that You would help me. I'm weak. And in many ways not a very gifted communicator. Father, I need Your help. I pray that You will provide me with clarity in my own thinking and that You will also illuminate everyone in the room our, our understanding of what Your Word has for us that we would be dependent upon You for that very thing. Our desire is to grow. Our desire is to understand Your purposes. And we... We do anticipate growth. We long to be grown in our understanding of you, of your church, the ministry of the church, and how we can be used as instruments in your hand for your greater glory. And so we pray for progress this day, that you'll allow us to rejoice in the reality that you are committed to us in every way. You are so faithful. And Father, help us to be committed to You. Help us to reach. Help us to move out of our comfort zones. Help us to to grasp for truth in a world that is, is so lost and is in so need of truth. A world that celebrates sin. And You've allowed us as the ecclesia, as the church, to be called out of that to be the ones that can be grown and shaped and molded to have an impact on this world for Your glory. So we plead with You. We ask that You'll encourage our hearts and allow us to see with clarity the truth from Your Word. And we ask this in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you're not opened up to Titus yet, I invite you to please open up to uh, the book. And you'll notice that under chapter 1, letter B, in your outline, that we're going to study the motive behind the letter. And Paul provides this in the opening verses. This blanket purpose statement really reflects the nuts and bolts of the letter. And thus we have a sermon title that reads, Titus, Nuts and Bolts. And yes, the play on words continues. Uh, Titus does provide for us um, a, a, an insight, or excuse me, the Apostle Paul in his letter to Titus, really what, what ties the, the purpose, what is the prevailing purpose for which Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to record this letter. Well, let's read the opening three verses. We'll start in Titus 1.1, 1, 1, which says this. Paul a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago but at the proper time manifested His word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God." Our Savior. Last week I shared that an analysis of Paul's 13 New Testament letters revealed something in the salutations. When Paul was focusing on a letter which predominantly included correction for the church, his salutations were longer. We see this in 1 Corinthians. We see it in Romans. We see it in Galatians. And now we see it right here in the little book of titus as we've just read and so paul um, does provide this overarching purpose for us and let me just say our brother was known for some serious run on sentences there's a little bible joke that paul truly doesn't know what a period is and if he does know what it is then he certainly didn't know how to use it and i don't know if you've ever been taught this but did you know that paul's name in the greek actually means conjunction did you know that it's a uh, conjunction? Did you? That's a joke, okay. Uh, it is a joke. It's not a conjunction, but it could be. He's, he's known for just, and this, and that. It was like, he was, you know, as the Holy Spirit was superintending, Paul's writing. And I just picture him uh, recording, you know, like, you know, he's just got to know that God is just like blessing him with this understanding and this insight and this and this and this and this. And this and that eagerness just to record it. At least that's what I think of in my thinking. But it will help us to break down this motive into palatable pieces, bite-sized chunks. And so this is why you see three different emphases. But it will be important for us to remember that this is one continuous thought or purpose in the mind of the Apostle Paul. And so much like a bike tire that consists of three parts, you have the tire, the rim, and the spokes. And each of those parts serves a specific purpose. All of them contribute to the greater whole. And the motive uh, w- with these emphases uh, does the same thing as, it, as it's reflected in what Paul writes in this lengthy opening statement. The motive also reflects uh, theological truths which are woven into the fabric of the letter. And so... We see an example of this. The faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth according to godliness listed in verse 1 are to be motivating concerns for the elders as false teaching gets addressed and Paul's led by the Holy Spirit to confront it because it was serving as a deterrent. Cretan believers are also urged to live godly lives in Titus chapter 2, and we're going to get there, in Titus chapter 3. And the theological basis for doing so is rooted in the grace of the gospel and God's electing of believers as reflected in our opening verse. We'll see how all of this connects as we progress through the letter. But let's get started with the nuts and bolts behind the letter. And as your outline shares, we're going to look at three, three emphases found within Paul's motive for writing Titus that impact our personal walk with God. The Holy Spirit led Paul to emphasize certain things. Certain aspects embedded within his motive that should encourage our hearts tremendously. Three emphases within Paul's motive for writing Titus that impact our personal walk. And you can find them in your bulletin. They are our personal faith, our purposed growth, our promised future. So let's dig it out as we study Titus together and emphasis number one our personal faith after Paul introduces himself as a doulos theos after Paul introduces himself as an apostolos he's, he's led to share a ministry motive for which he's writing and depending on your translation he says for the faith of those chosen of God or for the faith of God's elect in verse 1b Remember, Paul doesn't like periods. And our verse continues with a conjunction that, that links how he just introduced himself and what he's just shared. And the conjunction in the Greek actually indicates purpose. And that is why if you have an ESV, it says, for the sake of. What is the ministry motive behind this letter? And it starts here with Paul connecting the purpose of his service as a humble slave of God and then his authority as, as an apostle. And he's writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect, And thus the direction and ministry motive of Paul's entire apostleship and of this letter as an expression of ministry is for the soundness of faith of God's chosen people. And if you look down to Titus 1.13, it reflects this. When addressing false teaching, it provides instruction and it says so that they may be sound in the faith. And then in Titus 2.2, which is probably on the same page of your Bible, It encourages older men also to be sound in faith. And so whenever we see the word faith used in Scripture, it can be saying a couple of things. It can be reflecting the body of truth known as the faith, or it can be reflecting the response, the subjective response to that body of truth, which is what's taking place in this verse. And the way that we know this is because the word translated chosen is in the plural. And that is why our first point says our personal faith. There's a personal connection to us. God has designated people in this world that He's called out from. But as I just prayed earlier, He's chosen us. They are His elect ones. Chosen in love before the foundation of the world to be God's special Possession, And here in verse 1, Paul is telling us that his ministry as a servant of God and as apostle is for the personal faith of all those chosen by God. And it uses, this verse uses the Greek expression, eklekton theo, and it literally means those chosen of God. And the only other time that we see this exact Greek construction is found in Romans 8.33, which says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring a charge against those chosen of God? A fair question, right? Because there is no higher authority. It is God, the supreme authority over those that He chooses. And the Greek adjective translated chosen is used to speak of those whom God has chosen from the generality of mankind and drawn to himself. If you're a sports fan in the room, just recently over the weekend, they have what was called the NFL Draft. And every spring, what they do is, there's a collection of a couple thousand, a few thousand athletes that end their collegiate football careers that play in various divisions from uh, the, the smaller schools, Division three schools, all the way uh, to the larger schools, Division one schools. And I think that some of the schools out here even have football teams. Um, I know that USC used to have one, but, but um, I think, <laughs> sorry, I knew somebody. It was a UCLA fan, I'm sure, that applauds that, okay? And, and UCLA is, is striving. No, they're, they're, the, the, the draft is unique in the sense that it's a collection of players. And all of these players typically have a desire, not all, but many have a desire to play in the National Football League. And whether or not they're chosen is all based on how well or how skilled they are as a football player and how they can contribute to a professional football team. Their athletic value or worth dictates whether or not they will be chosen to play on an NFL team. And the fallen world in which we live is driven in many ways by what it deems as worthy Or valuable. And what a contrast to the God of the universe who chooses believers not based on how well they can perform, not based on their skill set, not based on their intellect, not based on what they can necessarily do. In fact, it's based completely on something opposite. Because of Adam's transgression, all of us, enter this world as guilty, um, sinful, self-absorbed sinners. And as fallen creatures, we have no desire whatsoever to serve the Creator or to serve His purposes. We have no desire for fellowship with Him either. God is holy and just and good, and we're sinful and perverse and corrupt. And we pursue our own things in our own way. And we have no desire to acknowledge Him. And as we learned last week, we were slaves bound to that sin. We, were, we served that master of, of self, really, for our life. And we were inevitably following the God of this Antichrist world and doing the will of everything Antichrist And when we talk about God choosing us, we have to talk about it in its proper context. It cannot be staged as a a political conversation based on fairness. It cannot be staged by the world's terms based on value or worth. It cannot be staged on an individual's fallen thinking based on entitlement or obligation or privilege or personal merit. It must be staged based on the fact that all men cut themselves off from the Lord of heaven and have forfeited all rights to His love and favor. And it would have been perfectly just for God to have left us in our sin, in our misery, and for Him to have shown mercy to no one. But that's not what He did even though God was under no obligation. This is the context that we need to understand to have the right perspective of what it means to be chosen of God. And here is how one commentator expresses it. The doctrine of election declares that God, before the foundation of the world, chose certain individuals from among the fallen members of Adam's race to be the objects of his undeserved favor. These and only these he purposed to save. God could have chosen to save all men. For he had the power and authority to do so. Or he could have chosen to save none, for he was under no obligation to show mercy to any. But he did neither. Instead, he chose to save some and to exclude others. His eternal choice of particular sinners for salvation was not based upon any foreseen act or response on the part of those selected, but was based solely on his own good pleasure and sovereign will. And thus, election was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that man would do, but resulted entirely from God's self-determined purpose. End quote. And so, when we talk about Paul's ministry motive in writing this letter, and we talk about our personal faith, it's personal for a couple different reasons, for, from a couple different angles. First, it's personal to God. The God of the universe through the ultimate and most gracious act drafted us. He chose us. He set His affection upon us to respond to the gospel and faith. And His choice of us enables our choice of Him, right? We can choose to follow Him because He chose us to follow Him. And this is the personal, genuine faith and the ministry motive of Paul that this letter emphasizes. Secondly, it's personal to us because if the kindness of God brings us to faith and repentance, and that's what the Scripture teaches us, it does, and if our faith now belongs to us, right?, it's a personal faith established through a personal relationship with the God of the universe, right? And there is that body of truth, the faith. But it's personalized when we, we come and God draws us to faith in him. It can, it, there's a connection now with us. And it's often said that people ask that question. And we do. When, when you first understand God's electing love, one of the first questions that we ask um, what is it? Why me? Right? That question. Why? Why me? And what's significant is that as we progress in our understanding, as we gain gospel progress in our understanding, God matures us and He grows us and He brings us to a place where we ask the right question right, or a a legitimate question, not necessarily the right question, why anyone? Why anyone? And a lot of people end with thinking that, and this isn't, I'm not being critical, but as we continue to progress in, in our faith, I believe that there are additional questions that God would have us answer, that he would want us to be thinking about. How can we steward this faith which has been entrusted to us? For what purposes did God save us? Did He save us for the sake of us just being saved? And Paul provides spiritual answers and application as he unfolds the ministry motive within the second emphasis. We're looking at three emphases within Paul's motive that impact our personal walk we just looked at our personal faith and the next emphasis is this our purposed growth our purposed growth the ministry motive continues in verse one and again no periods from the apostle paul only conjunctions and so after it says "katapistis pistis eclecton fail for the sake of the faith of those chosen of god he continues by saying and for the sake of the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And that Greek conjunction, it's it's kata in the Greek, provides uh, that governing uh, purpose statement for the sake of over the second phrase as well. And that's why I read it that way. For the sake of the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So Paul's concern was just not that faith should begin, as vital as that is. And I'm not downplaying, downplaying that in, in, in any way. He wanted Cretan believers' faith to increase, to grow. But how does this happen? Paul's ministry motive affirms the emphasis on our faith, and we'll see that it's going to also emphasize our continued or purpose growth as believers. The compound noun that translates into the English as knowledge, it's one of Paul's favorite terms, and it speaks to a full, precise, complete knowledge. In the pastoral epistles, it's regularly connected to uh, aletheia, which is the, the Greek word truth. The truth-knowledge connection is tied to the gospel message in 1 Timothy 2:4 when speaking of God it says who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Timothy 2:25 it has implications for both believers and unbelievers and it says this perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Clearly God's truth has Definite content, content and clear parameters around it. And such truth and knowledge is not merely speculative or philosophical in nature. It is as the, the verse repeal, uh, reveals, according to godliness. And in the Greek, this is all pointing toward an end goal. And this is the point of emphasis number two. It is our purpose growth. Knowledge we know can be misused, Right? It can cause people to be arrogant. It can cause us to be puffed up, according to 1 Corinthians 8.1. One commentator shares that the, the noun translated god, godliness is only used by Paul in the pastoral epistles, and it describes the outward, visible witness of genuine faith in and reverence of God. And prior to the Lord Jesus Christ's ascension, he promised that the Holy Spirit was going to be sent, right? And the Holy Spirit was going to do something specific. He was going to guide the apostles, guide them into all aletheia, into all truth. And in their apostolic writings, we have the fruit of that promised ministry. And in the New Testament letters of the apostles, we do not have the words of men. We have the words of God Himself, the Holy Spirit. He was at work as these men were writing, helping them to express the truth. And here in verse 1 of Titus, Paul tells us what that truth does it leads to godliness. And unlike the false teaching that was taking place on the island of Crete, where you had these men who were actually worshiping the Greek mythological god of Zeus, right? Who was prized and worshiped because he was a master of deception. Paul wanted to make sure that the Cretan believers knew that our God doesn't lie. And God's Word through Paul's teaching and ministry motive emphasizes that truth. And it promoted holy and God-centered living. And that was why Paul taught it. Here is how one commentator Expresses it. We see the importance of availing ourselves to Paul's apostolic ministry of reading and studying the things which Paul wrote. Such truth, if believed in practice, will make us Christians of growing godliness. Our lives will be increasingly pleasing to God, increasingly centered on God, increasingly useful to God, increasingly honoring to God, more and more beautiful with the beauty of God himself and what is true of paul's apostolic letters is true of the rest of the new testament and the whole of scripture god's word is truth in its entirety in psalm 119 verse 160 and there is a verse 160 of psalm 119 it's pretty wild we usually give a chapter heading you don't think about hearing verse 160 but it's it's in there and it says the sum or the entirety of your word is truth Ever, every one of your ordinances, God, is everlasting. Beautiful verse. and the letter of Titus, and all the letters that contain the knowledge of truth have been given to us for the very purpose for promoting our godliness. This means that if godliness is the object of our desire, the Word of God as a whole must be increasingly studied. It. It must be known. It must be believed. It must be lived out by us. We are sanctified through the application of its truth. I want you to do something. I want you to think of the godliest person that you know. Right now, just think of somebody, the first person that that comes to, to mind, who is the godliest person that you know. I'm asking you to finish this sentence. Blank is the godliest person that I know. Think about it for a moment. I have a person who immediately comes to mind. He's humble. He's gentle. He truly is meek. He's wise. And when I probe into my thinking... And I, I, I try to think about why is he that way? Why do I think that he is such a godly man? I have the answer. It's his commitment to the knowledge of the truth of God's word. He is committed. And, and I don't know if this is true. And there, there are other marks of, of godly people, right? And God, you know, it might be somebody that was really prayerful. But I would even go so far as to say that even a person's prayerfulness is driven and based out of motives that are drawn out of the Scriptures. Godly people cling to God's Word, don't they? They do. They, they just they cherish it. And I'll have you know that I was not thinking of John MacArthur. I wasn't. If you're intrigued, you can ask me after service. Godly People cling to God's Word. My point of this exercise was for us to see that nine out of ten times when we think of godliness, we think of someone who has a strong commitment to the Scriptures. And it blesses us to be around such Spirit-filled people, doesn't it? It really does. There's such an encouragement. But it will bless us even more to be. To be one of those Spirit-filled people. And the Apostle Paul, through the ministry motive of this letter, calls us to the full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Our purpose growth is for godliness. And when I think about it, even from a personal standpoint, the time... The times where um, I, I am growing the most, it is when I am spending the most time in the Word, studying the Word. And the times where I'm not and disconnected, I also see my my flesh prevail. <laughs> right, Victoria? <laughs> it's true. I know that's true for many of you as well. So, I don't want to be elementary here. I don't want this to be like, like seen as something so simple. But our purpose growth we, requires purpose, time, and study in God's Word. And I posted this on my Facebook. I'm not simply talking about reading God's Word. Because I've done this too. As I'm reading through a book and I want to continue to progress in my understanding, I read it for the sake of reading. And I I wake up in the morning and I open my Bible to uh, Titus chapter 1 and I can read it. I can gloss over so much. But life and the pursuit of godliness starts when we end reading our bible and we begin to study our bible and i would say this and it could be expressed this way one verse applied is better than an entire book read one verse applied is better than an entire book read right that's that's the point that is it, That we, we cling to it. It's for our purpose growth. That it's going to continue to change us. It's continuing to mold us. God's taking his divine scalpel and, and, and he's got it out. And he, he, he's using it on Ashley Bacanas. He is taking it and he is cutting away. He is, he, he is carving you literally into a godly woman. Because you are clinging to his scriptures. Because he is renewing your mind. Because he's allowing it to have an impact on your soul. And that's his desire and heartbeat for us. And so it's a fair question for us all. Am I simply reading God's word or am I studying it? Is my study leading me to apply my heart and mind to what I am reading? Am I engaging it? Is it changing me according to his will? I mean, we all strive to answer yes to that question. There's, that's, that's where the freedom is. That's where the slavery that we were broken away from, uh, slaves to sin, we, we now have the, the, the freedom of slavery in God that as he instructs us and gives us all the counsel that steers us away from the pitfalls of this world. Our passage provides three emphases within Paul's motive for writing Titus that impact our personal walk with God the first one was our personal faith the second one is our purpose growth and the third emphasis is our promised future emphasis number three our promised future and finally we get to verses two and three and all God's people said amen right we're, we're, we're moving on moving on up we're, we're actually on down as we continue to study, we're, we're, we're moving on to verse 2 and 3, which won't take us anywhere near as long as verse 1. Okay, But this is what it says. It reads as follows, "...in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested His word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior." I'll share with you, Victoria uh, was telling me, she said, I read those two verses like 20 times and I still don't know what they mean. And so if, if you're in that camp, let me just say it's okay. And we're going we're gonna to again break, break them down and, and put them into palatable uh, bite-sized chunks. And one of the challenges that we face in this introduction is knowing how some of the parts fit together It is a long sentence. Paul just keeps going. He's the energizer bunny. He just keeps going and going. He just keeps writing and writing. And we're actually learning a valuable lesson here. All of us had the English grammar uh, teachers who would ding us, right, for writing. They would write that that this is a run-on sentence. Find a period, brother. You know, why did they do that? There's a reason for that. Because what happens is as a sentence keeps going longer and longer, it's hard to track. It's hard to keep the flow of thought. And so that is one of the challenges that we face. And it gets increasingly more difficult when we move from verse 1 to verse 2, especially with such a long sentence. There's no period in sight. And Paul begins this verse with yet another preposition. Don't let it discourage you. The emphasis comes right at the beginning of verse 2 and it's this the hope of eternal life and the phrases that actually follow are are qualifiers or supporting statements of this initial phrase in the hope of eternal life i'll talk about those in just a moment but i want to spend some time on the hope of eternal life hope in our everyday speech usually refers to something uncertain we go to um, Elijah's baseball game, and we, we hope, John, that it's going to be nice weather outside. We hope that it doesn't rain. We hope that he bats three for three in a playoff game and helps his team win yesterday. All right. 9.55. Time to pray, church. 10 in the morning, 10 p.m., Valuable to set on, on, on the phone. Um, and that was not planned, just so you know. Uh, but, but hope, when we talk about hope, we, we usually think about things that are uncertain. And in the Bible, hope refers to something certain. The Greek word elpis can be translated expectation, which I believe is more effective for our understanding. The verse could actually be rendered in the expectation of eternal life. As believers, we live in this expectation. One translation I saw even translated uh, the word confidence, which again, I believe, offers more insight into what's being emphasized. And this is how it is with the hope of eternal life. We can be certain that one day that there will be a fulfillment of that hope when we stand in His presence. In His presence is fullness of joy. In His right hand are treasures forever. There will be a fulfillment of that. How can we be certain? Well, this is where our first qualifier or qualifying phrase comes into play for our promised future. Verse 2 says, "...which God who cannot lie..." And I really like how the ESV translates this. says, I believe it says, "...who never lies." Is that what it says? Fantastic. This word actually functions as an adjective describing God and it literally means the non-lying God. And, and and we get this why Paul would be led to write this because of the background of what's taking place. You had the lying false god of Zeus on the island and even led people to lie about his tomb being uh, somewhere on the on the island. He was a deceiver. And Paul wanted to make sure that Cretan believers let other Cretan believers know that our God doesn't lie. And I shared that earlier, and it bears repeating again. He is the one and only true God committed to the truth. Not only does God not lie about the expectation of eternal life, but He promises it. There's also this phrase, "promise" long ages ago, right? It's right right there for us. This phrase is used only one other time in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy 1.9 where it's speaking of God and the eternal implications of the Gospel. And it says, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That's it right there. This is a, a, a direct reference to eternity past. This is Ephesians 1.4 language where it says just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. For God who does not lie also promised before the foundation of the world eternal life to His elect before this begins. And this was His eternal plan and purpose. And if we're among God's chosen people, then we can be certain that that eternal life is ours. It's ours because He says it is. And it's promised us and one of my passages and we're just right next door to it because it's in hebrews which is really like the next book over even though Philemon, philemon's in between it's not really it doesn't seem like a book turn there real quick just to hebrews chapter six flip over just a couple pages because i want to i want i want you to see this hebrews 6 7 18, and 18 it says this: in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of promise, okay, that word epangelamai in, in the Greek, and in this context, it's speaking uh, in reference to salvation. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable na- unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by God, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope, or we can translate there, the L Peace, there's that word again, the expectation set before us. And so our first qualifying statement of our promised future in Titus 1-2 mentions hope, A promise and the impossibility of God lying. And ironically, the same thing is mentioned right here in Hebrews chapter 6. And I love what it says in the following verse. And this is actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 19, this hope, this elpis, this expectation we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. How beautiful is that? When the storms of life come, when the water is raging, when the circumstances are crazy, and and, and many things in life seem like they're just upside down. We're being tossed to and fro. What was your last storm? What will your next storm be? doesn't matter. Let me tell you why. Because either way, we're covered. Our, our promised future grounded in the reality of the gospel and the covenant promise of eternal life that comes from our God who cannot lie. Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have as an anchor to the soul. Hope both steadfast and sure. It's an anchor. It, it, it grounds us. You know what? Whatever this life throws at, Whatever this life throws at you, we have Christ. We have the eternal hope. We, have, we, we, we will be eternally rescued from the trials of this life. They will come to an end. And Paul shares it because it's a motive. And like a true. Preacher, my time is up. I got admin people in the back giving me five minutes and then now I'm down to one minute. No. Okay. I, I rejoice. Thank you, Adam, so much for your faithfulness. But there's one other qualifying statement and just Titus one three, let's just let's just read it real quick. Titus one three it says, But at the proper time manifested his word uh and I'm not being efficient but at the proper time manifested his word in the proclamation with which i was entrusted according to the commandment of god our savior and the final phrase serves as again another supporting statement to the hope of eternal life and it's actually in contrast to the statement that we just looked at that's why there's a but there in contrast to the promise of salvation made long ages ago this phrase at the proper time manifested is a reflection of God's sovereign action and it's literally saying now in God's time he has made his message evident we are no longer talking about eternity past we're talking about now Paul is saying we're talking about the current time of the manifestation of his word and it's the logos and it's not talking about logos the, the, the Christ it's talking about the gospel it's talking about that revelation that comed, that, that, that came now to, to this point in, in time, it's, it's arrived. That life-giving message was, was committed to Paul. It, it says that it was entrusted to him. And he could never escape the wonder that this assignment would be for him. And, and he ref, reflects upon it. He says, he says that it was given to him as a message. Not, and he's not fit to be an apostle because he persecuted the church. And when Paul shared the message was brought to the world through the preaching entrusted to him, this refers not to the act of preaching, but to the message that was being heralded. It was the gospel that Paul was preaching. And he finishes the phrase by saying very emphatically in the Greek, I on my part was entrusted with this message by the command of God our Savior. The assignment we are told comes to him straight from God the command of God our Savior it is a, it is a vigorous assertion of his divine commission underlining the authority behind this entire letter. and I, I celebrate that because we'll, we'll see um, what gospel living looks like we'll see what the, the, the high calling of the gospel and how that gets translated for us well, to sum things up, because our time is up, Paul mentioned three ministry, uh, three emphases related to the ministry motive on why he wrote this letter, his personal, our personal faith, pur- purpose growth, and a promised future. And though no person today may rightfully claim to be an apostle, the key emphasis in Paul's ministry is And the key in the ministry of every gospel ministering believer provides us with the access to uh, be equipped with the apostolic gospel, with teaching of the apostolic letters and the rest of the Word of God. And with these tools, by the blessing and the grace of God, the same great ministry that Paul aimed at can be achieved by us. as God's elect will come to faith and enter into the position of the hope of eternal life and their faith will be nurtured and increased and as the truth is proclaimed and received into the heart godly living and God's glory will be promoted and it's a beautiful beautiful thing I'm going to pray very quickly and then we're going to have to vacate the room very quickly so thank you all for for, um, your responsiveness gracious father we do um, look forward to seeing how you continue to uh, use this letter to have a tremendous impact on us, to shape us and to, to mold us we, we celebrate uh, the, the reality of how you continue to be at work in our lives and um, I pray Father that if there's someone here today that doesn't know you that they would see that in a moment that they can be reconi- reconciled uh, to you through faith in the one who saves the Lord Jesus Christ that if they call out to him for forgiveness of sins Heavenly Father they can have Christ's perfect righteousness and have forgiveness we celebrate that in our own lives and we know that that's what continues to allow us to grow as believers as you've en- enabled us now to pursue Christ and to pursue Christ likeness in your word we ask that you'll help us to do that very thing this we give you all the praise and all the glory in Christ's name, amen amen Amen.